0: I appreciate this opportunity this morning to be able to participate in this study and to be able to present the material that we've prepared this morning. I've mentioned to a a couple of you that I feel like I sort of have the happy circumstance of being able to preach to the choir on the issue that I have. I realize there might be someone here who could disagree with what we say and might be able to bring up some issue or related question that might be a little difficult to take care of or to answer. but in general I feel like I'm preaching to the choir so I do take some solace in that. Uh, This morning what we're talking about is Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 and these verses are oftentimes referred to as disputed verses that is to say they are seen as not being original to Mark but that they were added by some other person after Mark wrote the book of Mark. Now Um, This morning what we're going to be talking about is the external evidence and by that or the first session we're going to be talking about the external evidence and uh, what we mean by that is that there are manuscripts and church fathers who address this that deal with this particular issue way back in the early centuries of Christianity and so that's primarily what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Now. I have two topics this morning because originally I just had one and I felt like I had plenty of material to cover that topic and then Richard asked me if I might be willing to do a second and I said well I'm not sure I don't know what I would do and then later I said well I think I have enough to cover two in this t- with this same topic so I'm thankful to be able to expand uh, to the internal evidence in the second discussion. But this morning my d- position on translations in the Greek text I wanna say just a few words about this for those in the future who are not part of this audience and may not be part of our brotherhood, who may be listening to this on YouTube, and I wanna clarify some things that I know might be in their mind when they search for a video on this topic and land on this one. Number one, I am not a King James Version only person, nor am I a King James, a New King James Version only person, I have used many translations for many years and I appreciate the work of translators in presenting and providing those translations. Number two, I am not a textus receptus only person. In fact, in my studies of the original language I rely primarily on the critical critical text and I find many of the modern text critical arguments persuasive and reliable on a lot of different passages. And so I think that each reading and each variant needs to be evaluated on its own individual basis and so I reserve the right this morning therefore to dissent from what is the predominant view on Mark 16. I'm going to dissent and say that the predominant view is that these verses are not original and I believe that they are and I'm going to try to present this morning reasons why I think that's a plausible position to take Now I acknowledge that I am not a trained textual scholar, a New Testament textual critic. Uh, I have read the books, the primary ones, and a lot of scholarly articles on various textual issues as well as what's an amazing miracle today is you can go online and look at manuscripts from all over the world and look firsthand at them and see what they say. And I've taken the opportunity to do that to somewhat of a Uh, uh, somewhat of an extent and last of all, I'd like to say that I acknowledge that this presentation due to the constraints of time is limited and rather reductionistic and incomplete in the presentation but we'll do the best we can with the time that we have Okay. so that said, to the wider YouTube audience I'd like to go ahead now and point out some of the things about this passage up here is Mark chapter 16 I know you can't read it A lot of this is a bird's-eye view. What we're interested in tonight, this morning rather, is these disputed verses, the ones highlighted in color at the bottom half of the page. These are the 12 verses at the end of the book of Mark. Now the question that I want to pose to begin with today is what is the issue? Well I think it's summed up quite well in an article called Literary Approaches to the End of Mark's Gospel by Joel E. Williams when he said there that because of the omission of Mark 16:9 through 20 from important early manuscripts of Mark and the unique features of this passage, the general consensus among New Testament scholars is that the writing of Mark the evangelist ends at verse 8, and 9 through 20 are not his, uh, not his words. Important early manuscripts deals with the external evidence. The unique linguistic features deals with the internal evidence, so that's the broad outline of what we have to say today. Now, maybe we're most familiar with this issue whenever we look into our translations. The New King James Version, there's the page from Mark 16, the New King James Version does a great service to the reader in that it provides many different uh, textual variants that exist between the Textus Receptus upon which the New King James and the King James was based, versus the critical text that the newer translations are based upon. If you look closely at those notes, you can get all kinds of very valuable information right there at your fingertips. But on Mark 16, right there in the middle of the page at verse 9, you have this little note here that says, verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in you as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. All right, so what is this note talking about? Well, first, uh, they are bracketed, these verses are, in in you, the footnote says. Okay, well, in you, in stands for the Nestle Aland, and then it's got a Latin title, Novum Testamentum Graece, and that's New Testament Greek, or Greek New Testament. The in stands for Nestle Aland. The U stands for United Bible Society's Greek New Testament. These two Greek texts are exactly identical. It is the United Bible Society's text from which most of the new translations are made and have been made now for several decades. All right. Now, that's the note in the New King James Version. In the New American Standard Version of the 1995 revision, you have here, beginning at verse 9, a bracket, and then at the end of verse 20, a bracket. And then at verse 9 is a footnote here, which takes you down here to the bottom of the page, which says, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Then if you look after verse 20, then you get another paragraph that we might not have been familiar with if we haven't looked at these newer versions. You get this paragraph here. This paragraph is bracketed off. It is called the shorter ending and I'll read that in a moment but not right now then there's a footnote here with this one takes you down to the bottom of the page again and it says there that a few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph this one usually after verse 8 a few have it at the end of chapter 8 and we'll look at that in more detail in a moment the ESV which is a very good translation and I know a lot of our brothers are using them, and I know of a couple of preachers or more, maybe, who have turned completely to this version, and I have no problem with that. Verse 8 comes to here in Mark 16, then there's a a little paragraph here that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Then you get verse 9, starting in the next section, with a double bracket, and then at the er, end of verse 20, another double bracket, and then the footnote down at the bottom down here. Now I'm not going to read all that because we're going to read all of it here in a moment, but this is essentially the shorter ending that was also referenced in the NASB 1995 that we just looked at. (coughs) One more. NIV 2011 says in verse 8, you've got it there, then after verse 8 is a bar or a line that blocks that text off from what follows. There's a little paragraph. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And then you get verses 9 through 20, but you get it in italics. Now, this italics serves the, 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 serves the purpose, really, of setting these verses off from the rest of the verses. Now what I've noticed through the years is I've watched these translations come out and I've watched them uh, published and deal with these verses in different ways. It's my impression that little by little these 12 verses are being pushed off the table. And I think really I believe that sooner or later we're going to see translations published without these verses because that's just seems to be the direction that things are going and so in view of that I felt sort of compelled to try to deal with this as best I'm able to do and so hence the reason for this topic this morning okay so the NIV 2011 says that now modern commentaries on Mark in fact don't even comment on these verses the commentators composing or writing putting together modern-day commentaries do not even acknowledge verses 9-20 through So I think our people need to be aware of the fact and get used to the idea they're going to see versions come out sooner or later without these verses. Now, it may take a while, because these verses are pretty solidly lodged in the minds of Bible readers. But in the text critics' minds, and many of them very conservative, and many of them people that we appreciate the efforts that they have put forth, also see these verses as non-Markan, as they like to say. Well, I want to point out, this is not a modern issue. This is not a 20th century or a 21st century issue. In fact, in the 4th and 5th centuries, this matter was being discussed, and it was aware that these verses were missing from some manuscripts. We can find in Eusebius and Jerome and others way back there in the early centuries of this uh, disruption, shall we say, in the textual tradition of the book of Mark. In the 19th century, this came really to the format, or to the forefront, excuse me, with the, uh, uh, with the availability of Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus that we'll say a lot more about in a few minutes. And when Westcott and Hort published their revised Greek text in 1881, uh, these verses came strongly into the discussion and have been ever since. And back in the 1800s, They were saying, the the textual critics, that the real original ending of Mark was lost. We don't know what it is. And then verses 9 through 20 were added later by some unknown scribe. Now then, since about 1970, however, this position has changed, shifted somewhat, without any really new evidence coming forward, that Mark intended to end at verse 8. That Mark didn't, uh, there wasn't something lost after verse 8, but that Mark really did intend to end at verse 8. And then verses 9 through 20 and other endings as we look at were added later, later on in the history of the transmission of the text of Mark. Alright, so what is my purpose this morning? I realize that in presenting this material I'm sort of going up against the tide, uh, the tsunami of the textual critic world. And so I feel somewhat um, uh, cognizant of my position in doing that. But what is my purpose this morning? Well, it is basically to say that there are two sides to this story. That is, got one story in the footnotes of translations, which is what most people see. Then there is another side to that story, and I want to present that story this morning. We need to do this, first of all, however, by looking at the different endings that are found in Mark in the various manuscript traditions. Now then, endings is sort of a misnomer because I think really two of them are actually interpolations or things added to the already known verses 9 through 11. But that's just semantics, maybe, maybe not. But let's look at these endings. There is first of all what what we're going to call the abrupt ending which says that Mark ends at verse 8. Verse 8 says, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, the women who bought the spices, and went there to anoint the body. For they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. There is, in other words, in this passage, no post-resurrection appearances, no great commission, no ascension into heaven. That's the end of Mark. The longer ending is the verses 9 through 20 that we're so familiar with. Let me give you a bird's eye view here. Up there is the abrupt ending. That's verse 8. Over here, the longer ending is verse 8 plus verses 9 through 20. These are the ones we know. All right, let's look at the shorter ending. This is the one that appeared in the footnotes of the NASB and the ESV that I cited a minute ago and said I would read later. Here it is. In verse 8, they went out quickly, fled from the tomb, trembled and amazed. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But, and this you may not be familiar with, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Then you get verse 9 and down to the end of verse 20. That's the shorter ending. So it looks like this. Verse 8, then the shorter ending, so-called, and then you get verses 9 through 20. You see why I'm saying that ending here is a bit of a misnomer. This paragraph appears in six manuscripts, Five of those manuscripts, it appears between verses eight and nine, and one of them actually appears only in the margin, out to the side, of the regular twelve verses. Now, there's this other thing called the Freer Logion. If you want to know what that is, just ask me later. But the Freer Logion is uh, is another interpolation among the six, uh, among the twelve verses. You got verse 14, which tells us there that Jesus rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, and then you get the Freer Logion. And they excused themselves, the apostles did, saying, The age of lawlessness, this age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not n- allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the Spirit. Therefore, reveal your righteousness now. Thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, The term of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled, and but other terrible things draw near. And for those who have sinned, I was handed over to death, that they may return to the truth and sin no more, that they may inherit the spiritual and imperishable glory of righteousness that is in heaven. And then it resumes with verse 15 to the end of verse 20. So the Freerogion looks like this. You have verses 8 through 14, the Freerogion, and then verses 15 through 20. And this occurs in one manuscript, the manuscript W. Uh, and. But there is evidence from Jerome, actually, that this freer logion was known for a long time. In fact, it was known about for by scholars for a long time. But this manuscript in which it occurs was not discovered until uh, the 20th century. It came to light in the 20th century. Well, the point here is that all agree that the shorter ending, the SE, and the freer logion are not original. There's no dispute about that. And so the question comes to my mind why even put them in the margins of translations if it is not in fact to create some more doubt about the actual verses of verses 9 through 20 I don't know why they put it in there but they do they want to tell you that well this occurs and that occurs etc so really our discussion this morning is about this and that's what we titled the lesson right Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 but the fact that these are in the footnotes of translations forces us at least to take notice of them and spend, or maybe I should say waste time, talking about them. But anyway, let's talk about a longer ending then. Verses 9 through 20. There's those verses with which we are so familiar. Now then, the question then is the, tra- the manuscripts upon which this question of these verses is based. What about the manuscripts? The NIV 2011 says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. We're going to talk about earliest manuscripts. We're not going to be able really to devote time to other ancient witnesses, although I wish we could. But that's the statement in the NIV. Now, the Greek manuscripts. There are about about 5,500 Greek manuscripts of the Bible. They're not all complete. There are some partial, some fragmentary. But in total, the Greek manuscripts come to about that. Now, of that 5,500, only about 1,640 of them contain Mark chapter 16. That's because of the fact that not all of the old manuscripts were complete New Testaments to begin with. And also, some of them are fragmentary because they've been lost with age and whatever. So Mark 16 uh, is found in about 1,640 manuscripts. So let's just take a timeline here zero is the birth of christ this is the first century right here and then the year 100 200 300 up to 500 so let's do a quick run here through about 400 years down here in the last half of the first century the new testament books were written now when those books were written that means that mark or luke or other authors wrote those books dispatched them to their intended audiences and that piece of papyrus upon which the authors wrote is called the autograph. Once the autograph was made then, people in the churches who received these letters and treatises written by the apostles and prophets of the first century, these individuals, these Christians, copied them and made more copies of them and copied and copied and copied and then with the passing of a long time many copies accumulated and then with the passing of more time old copies wore out and new ones replaced them down on through the centuries so that what happens now amazingly in the 20th century we find we meaning human beings find manuscripts from way back in these early centuries but they're only very fragmentary and partial so uh, a manuscript called P137 P stands for papyrus P-137 was copied in the second century. This is only a few years, relatively speaking, after the time that Mark wrote. The problem with P-137 is is it only contains parts of chapters 4 through 9 and chapters 12, 11, and 12. Same thing with P-45, a wonderful manuscript, third century, copied here in this period of time, but it only contains parts of chapter 2 and 6. So these manuscripts could have contained verses 9 through 20 in chapter 16, or maybe they didn't. We don't know. We don't have that part. But the point is, this is the earliest evidence or manuscript testimony to the book of Mark. One more, P88, 4th century. In the 4th century, this manuscript was copied, but what remains today is only parts of chapters 1 and 2. We're just going right down the stream of time. Now let's go one more step. The next one is Codex Vaticanus, chronologically. This is one that was mentioned in the footnote of the New King James Version. It was copied in the early to mid 4th century, around 325 to 340, right about in this period of time right here. Now, you know the thing about Vaticanus is this one doesn't have Mark 16 because it's lost this, uh, from that manuscript. This one doesn't have Mark 16 because it only has chapters 2 and 6. This only has chapters 1 and 2. This one has the whole Bible, or most of it. It originally had the whole Bible, but it has the whole book of Mark. And you know what? Verses 9 through 20 are not in that manuscript. So the earliest testimony, I mean, they're not telling us a lie. The earliest testimony is that this manuscript does not have it. Same with this one, Codex Sinaiticus. Codex, by the way, means a book with pages, just like we would say this book here. This would be a codex in the ancient terminology. And then these names, like Vaticanus, has to do where the codex, this codex is currently housed. Sinaiticus means this is where it was found. It was found in the monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. All right. This manuscript also does not contain Mark chapter 16 all right now we're gonna stop right there and pose the following question is there any evidence for the disputed verses during this period of time and I think there is in fact there is not only in other ways besides manuscripts of the Greek New Testament but there is evidence for it in the in these two very manuscripts themselves as has been argued by a number of scholars Okay, so let's take a look at these. We're going to start here with Codex Vaticanus. Codex Vaticanus is also sometimes called Codex B or 03 depending on what cataloging terminology you use to refer to it. And it is currently available for viewing by anybody that wants to go there on the Vatican Library website. Let me just take a moment and say what a wonderful amazing thing it is to live in a time where we have the technology that a hillbilly from Laclede County, Missouri can go read Codex Vaticanus from the Vatican Library. That is just beyond my comprehension. Well, here's the last part of the book of Mark, the ending of Mark, right here on this page. And there's the slide number and the link, if you're interested. Now then, uh, right here at the end, and I don't know if my colors are going to show up. Can you see that white box I just put around there? I started to make it red, and I decided white. But anyway, I'm blowing it out here. We're going to blow that ending out here, this part right here, and out here in this big box here. Now I want to prove to you that this manuscript really does end at verse 8. Let's don't be going around uh, uh, accusing people of things they aren't guilty of by saying they just are telling us that because it's not true. These words right here, which are underlined in white, which you can't see probably, uh, are these words right here. Ephavunto and the translation of that is is for they were afraid and then it stops right there and that's the way verse 8 stops in our translation if you look a little farther down here at the bottom this down here are uh, simply the words kata which just means according to mark that's the way they ended off the copy so in this passage it's clear in this manuscript that mark ends right there at verse 8 that's the way it is okay now then Uh, The next thing I want to call your attention to here is the next page, the beginning of Luke. And at the beginning of Luke right here, it starts at the top of this column at the top of the next page. Now the question that has been a matter of great discussion for a very long time is why is this column right here, this third column, you got one, two, three, this third column is blank. Why? That's the question. Now then, if you look elsewhere in, this, in the New Testament of this manuscript, you don't find this situation where a book ends and then you have a whole blank column and then you have uh, the next book beginning at the next column. You don't have that anywhere else. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, the question is, did he do this just to get a nice clean start at the top of the next page? I say no. I know that because he didn't do that anywhere else when he was copying this manuscript by hand. So here's uh, the end of Luke and the beginning of John. Luke ends there John starts up there I wish I had made different colors I hope you can see that those arrows point here's the end of Luke here's the end beginning of John In the very next column no blank column following same with the end of John and the beginning of Acts up here's the end of John right here's the beginning of Acts right in the very next column right here the end of Acts and the beginning of James now the books were in different order in this manuscript no big deal as far as our study is concerned James, excuse me, acts, ends right here, It leaves the rest of the column blank, but it does not leave another full column blank, but starts with the very next uh, column, which happens to be on the very next page, uh, here at the beginning of James. Here again, the end of James and the beginning of 1 Peter. James ends here, 1 Peter starts up here in the very next column. No blank column between the end of James and the beginning of 1 Peter. Same thing with the end of Matthew and the beginning of Mark. Matthew ends here, the rest of the column is blank, no single column totally blank, but the next book begins in the next column. So you see that's the pattern, that's the convention in this manuscript in the New Testament. But when you come to the book of Mark, the end of Mark, it's different. Why? Why is that blank column there? That's our question. That's the question we're interested in. Because here, the book ends, the rest of this column is blank. If he followed the convention here that he does elsewhere, he would have started Luke right here. What you see here actually is the bleed through from the other side of the page. If you think you're seeing writing here, it's the bleed through from the other side of the page, which is actually right there. That's the bleed through from the other side. So this column is blank and this one is blank, and then he starts the book in the next column after Mark, rather than like he did in the other parts of the manuscript. Why? Why is this? Well, someone says, well, there are other columns in the manuscript that are blank. And we would answer, well, that's true. Let's take a look at those. There are four, in fact, counting the one in question. Column one, or the blank column number one we want to look at is between the books of Esdras and Psalms. And what you're looking at here is the next to the last page of the book of Esdras. This manuscript contains the Apocrypha. And at the top of the next page, the very next column in the next page ends the book of Esdras, right here. And then you have blank column, blank column, blank column. Well, there it is. Look at that. Now then, I just moved this page over there. When you get there, then look what happens. The next book starts over here. But now we can account for these blank columns here. The convention would be to end it in this column and start the next book in this column, but he didn't do that. He waited he got over here. And the reason is is because, these two columns are blank because it's a change to a two column format. It's changing from the book of Ezra to poetry Psalms in which there are the format is two columns. It forces a change of format. So that explains those blank columns. Let's look at another one, column, blank column number two between Tobit and Hosea. There's the end of Tobit. There's a whole blank column right there and then the book of Hosea starts right here. Okay now uh, the reason for this, most scholars who have commented on this that I'm aware of point out that the reason for this is because of a change of genre in the literature. That is a different category of literature. The change takes place uh, to this pro- from this text here, uh, which is not prophetic, to Hosea, which is prophetic. It's a change of genre. You don't have that in- between Mark and Luke. It's not a different t- category of literature. It's from Gospel of Mark to Gospel of Luke. Let's hurry on. Oh, and the other thing here is that the book of Tobit is on the last book of a is the last book on Choir 49 of this manuscript choirs were where they took sheets of papyrus in this case and stacked them by four folded them in half and that made the pages and you came out with eight sheets or 16 pages and then you would do another four and do the same thing and you'd have multiple copyists working at the same time on different parts of the bible copying it down when they got all their copying done they'd sew all those choirs together into what we know as a book or what they called a codex Now then, that's what you've got here is you've got one copyist finishing up over here while the other one starts over here. My point is the blank column here is not just the change of genre, but the blank column here, likewise, is the fact that it is the necessity of the manufacture process of the manuscript. That is, the putting together of the manuscript forced that blank column so that they keep two copyists working at the same time. Uh, the evidence is that this language, the, the handwriting here is in fact different than this one. Alright, column number three between the Old and New Testaments. I'm gonna have to hurry. Between the Old and New Testaments you've got another difference here and this is a change of genre. You've got two full blank columns here and the change of genre between the Old and New Testaments. Alright, I've made my point. Blank column number four is the one in question. This one in question, why is this column blank? That's the question. It's not a change of genre. We're from Mark to Luke. It's the same category of literature. It's not a change of format. Three columns, three columns. It's not at the end of a choir. Those who can examine the manuscript by, by, uh, in person can determine that it's the same choir upon which these two books were written. Uh, it's not at the end of a choir. It is not a transition between testaments. Hence, there must be some other reason for this. And those who have looked at this have come to the conclusion that in the mind of the copyist, there is an awareness of a longer ending. So the presence of this blank column in and of itself suggests the fact that there is an ending to Mark that exists at the time this manuscript is made and that the copyist who was writing it down or copying it down may have not had verses 9 through 20 in the copy that he was copying from but that he was aware of its re-existence or its reality and hence left room for it. Now even Westcott and Hort say this, and Westcott and Hort by the way were among the very earliest men in the modern age to call these verses into question. Even they say that The copyist left the third column blank evidently because a subsequent reading was known to him personally while he found none in the exemplar which he was copying, which is what I just said. So I was really uh, alluding to Westcott and Hort when I made the point that I made there. Now then, some have called this practice of leaving this blank space, leaving what is referred to as memorial space. Bear in mind this manuscript is very expensive it is not just your average joe needing a copy of the book of mark and saying loan me your copy and i'll copy this i'll copy it out when i get home on the kitchen table this is done in a in a in a, in a in a place of a manuscript manufacture and so uh, its ultimate owner is probably going to be a wealthy person probably a church and the argument has been made that this blank space is there in order to give the person who is the ultimate owner of this manuscript the opportunity to add the known verses should the future owner desire them to be there. So, right, they aren't in this manuscript, but there's evidence that the people who made the manuscript knew about the verses. They're not created out of whole cloth right here in the middle of the fourth century. But they are aware of it at the time the manuscript is made. The only thing is, is we just don't happen to have any copies from that period of time that actually have those verses in the manuscript at that point in time. We have some very close, by the way. But anyway, uh, um, it's been argued that you can't put those verses in there, that the way won't fit. You can't, not enough room there. But uh, James Snapp, uh, is whose book I recommend, by the way, and his uh, blog. He puts a little image up here where he shows that, and there's so much more to say about this, but he shows that it's possible for a copyist using condensed spacing and condensed lettering to fit those verses into that section. And it's a well-known fact. You can demonstrate by the number of letters in the columns on this page, and the page before it, and the page after it, to demonstrate that the number of letters per column varied depending on how the copyist wanted the length of the manuscript to come out. So it's possible to use condensed lettering, which was a common convention, or expanded lettering, if necessary, to make a piece of text either longer or shorter as the needs require. And Mr. Snap showed us that those verses can be put in right in that section. So I think I think that's a, a believable thing, if you ask me. And of course, I'm going to be biased because this is my position. But uh, you you be the judge as you look at this image. Okay. Now I want to conclude on this manuscript by saying the case for Mark 16:9 through 20, according to James Snap Jr. and his Kindle version of his book, very good book. I recommend it. The thing to see here regarding the genuine ending of Mark is that when we take a close look at Codex Vaticanus, in which the text of Mark clearly stops at verse 8, with nothing afterwards except the closing title, this codex expresses the copyist's awareness of the absent 12 verses by the addition of memorial space. Well, I'm out of time almost, so let me get on with it here. The next thing we want to look at quickly here is Codex Sinaiticus. I'm going to go through this quickly. I want to get within time, and I want to cover everything. It's also called by this. It's viewable at the British Library website. Here it is, a nice picture, four column format per page, four columns per page. There is the end of Mark right there. There's the end of Mark. There's a blank column. And then there is where Luke begins. Notice how he begins in the very next column on this one, which is the convention. Now then, there's the end of Mark. If you bring it out over here, let's take a minute and really look at this closely. We want to get our, we want to get a burn this image into our mind, what we're seeing right here. Over here, the letters, which we already know means, uh, for they were afraid. So the manuscript, yes, it really does. It ends right there. And then, down here at the bottom, we have a little bit longer one down here. Evangelion kata markon. That is, the gospel according to Mark the Gospel according to Mark, which was the way of ending a book. That tells me this manuscript really does stop at verse 8. Now then, what we want to call your attention to, though, is that right there, you have the last five letters of efavunto God. You've got part of it up here, and then, like we do today, at the syllable point, they break and go to the next part. This is the last part of the next to the last word, and this is the last word right there. After that, After that, you get all of this flourish right here that starts right after the letters, goes across the line all the way to the end, picks up again and goes all the way across the line all the way to the end, and then you have this nice little flourish down here. Now what we're gonna notice here, and the reason I want this to be stuck in our minds, and I'm gonna try to help you burn that image in your mind by pointing to these various facets, uh, is to indicate that that marking after those words, those last five letters, those marks indicate that there is in the mind of that copyist more that could be, could have been put here. Only this one doesn't want to give you the option of adding it. This copyist wants to make sure you know don't add anything after this. Now then, let's take a look at the end of Matthew. We got the same kind of thing right here. Three letters ends the book right here at the top of the fourth column, and then after those four letters, there's nothing all the way to the end. That's not like what's at the end of Mark. Also, we have this little flourish here, but it's not nearly as expansive, extensive, as was the one in the book of Mark. Let's hurry. Look at it. See the comparison? See the difference between this little flourish right here versus this very ornate Arabesque. And all of these um, uh, diamond, or these, um, uh, I can't think of the term, the, uh, little marks here, all of this, very different at the end of the book of, of, uh, of Matthew, or, uh, Matthew. The book of the Acts, same thing. You've got five letters out here, there's nothing. Then over here, you've got this, I don't know if you can see it back there, but very fine, uh, wavy lines, and then you have that compared to Mark. Notice the difference. Also, the end of John, same thing, three, uh, four letters, then a colon, which is kind of a punctuation, and then nothing, and then you have this very light, wavy line flourish right here, and then compare that to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, the copyist here, is putting a huge roadblock right here. He's not doing it over here, but he is over here. He's saying, stop here. Once again, three letters, then a dot, nothing and a faint flourish compare that to mark and the first john same thing i don't want to be redundant here but i just want to indicate that uh, mark is an anomaly compared to the other practices throughout this manuscript so third john this is the last one you got two letters you got nothing after it you got very faint decoration here at the end and then compare that to mark So Mark, compared to all of these, is different. And this difference indicates the fact that this copyist, I believe, is saying nothing goes beyond here. Now why would he do that unless he knows something could go there and that he wants to communicate to anybody that in his mind, nothing should go there. So it's a fact that there were people in that day and time who thought those verses shouldn't be there, uh, 1,700 years ago. Now then, (laughs) The original ending of Mark, a new case for the authenticity of Mark, let we quote again from, no, this is from Nicholas Lon. He quotes C.R. Williams, just to let you know that I'm not just making this up out of my own little mind. The natural inference is that the scribe of Sinaiticus, the one we just looked at, intended to indicate in the most marked and definite manner possible without a note that Mark certainly ended at the close of verse 8. Notice in italics, which was original to his quote, His reason for doing so must have been due to the knowledge that not all manuscripts end at this point. So not only do we, it is a fact we don't have any manuscripts other than the ones I pointed out to you at the beginning of Mark 16, from that period of time, that give us verses 9 through 20. That's right, we don't have any. But the fact of these details about the ones that we do have, suggests those copyists knew about it, which implies that they existed. Now, I've made my point. I don't need to quote this again. Let me hasten. So what, let me just skip this too. I want to spend just a moment here talking about the early evidence of non, not, man, not Greek manuscripts, but the writings of the church fathers, Now don't misunderstand me, I'm not using that word in a religious sense. Church fathers just means like the founding fathers of America, the earliest leaders after the time of the apostles within the realm of Christianity. Uh, Here's our manuscripts, the two we've been looking at, copied in the fourth century. Now then, in a book that was discovered actually in the modern era, called the Gospel of Nicodemus. Now, we don't agree that the Gospel of Nicodemus is canonical or belongs in the Bible, but the Gospel of Nicodemus is important because it was copied, or I should say authored, in the 4th century, contemporaneous with these two uh, manuscripts right here, and it quotes verses 16 through 18. So that's enough just to show that those verses existed at the same time that the copying of these manuscripts occurred. And that the black space in Vaticanus and the arabesque in Sinaiticus implies that those authors were making provision or at least indicating or signaling the existence of those verses another author by the name of Hippolytus a hundred or more years before the copying of these manuscripts actually copied or actually quoted verse 19 the earliest Quotation from Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 is from Irenaeus in about 8180, nearly 200 years before the copying of Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus quoted verse 19. And then, and I know I'm almost out. I'm going to put these others here in a different color just to indicate they aren't quotes but allusions. That is to say. You make an allusion to something. You're not directly quoting it, but you're making a statement that calls it or echoes that statement. And these verses, in the belief of some scholars, are echoed by allusion all the way back to Clement, uh, First Clement in AD 100, which would only be about 50 years after the writing of the book of Mark. I feel like I'm getting tangled up in this thing. Okay, so... These indicate that there is the presence of these verses before the copying of these manuscripts. And that needs to be clarified when we take into account uh, the citation of these manuscripts and the translations that say the earliest and best manuscripts. And they are the earliest. And in many ways they are the best the earliest and best manuscripts do not have these verses and that they were added by someone later then that implies to a reader who hasn't read up on this issue that why verses 9 through 20 were added later on and nobody knew about it until they put them in at a later time but these uh, citations don't just suggest they verify the fact of the existence of those verses the only thing is is we now in the 20th 21st century do not happen to have any copies from that early period that have Mark 16, 9 through 20. But it's clear that somebody back there did. It's just that they've perished in the intervening time. Let me make my last point here in 37 seconds. The oldest and best manuscripts. Let's take a moment here. Uh, yes, these two are important. But if you go ahead just a little way to Codex W, copied in the fourth or fifth century, uh, one, side I, uh, one source I saw put it right at the transition from the 4th to the 5th century. Uh, Codex D, also copied in the 5th century, just a short time later. And these manuscripts, D and W, they're classed by textual scholars right up here with Vaticanus and, and Sinaiticus, in general at least, as the earliest and best. These are the ones that keep getting cited, but they, these two, contain the, the question verses. Also, these two texts come from the Western text type. Now, I, don't, I know we can't get into that, but I want to use that to make a point, and then I'll close. Uh, Codex A, Alexandrinus from the 5th century has the, the disputed verses. It is a Byzantine manuscript, which is the same text family from which the New King James, King James Version was translated. But uh, the Western is a different one, but here's the kicker. Also, Codex C, Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, copied in the 5th century, same period of time as here, but it's an Alexandrian manuscript, and the, at least in the, Gospels, uh, in the Gospels. And this Alexandrian manuscript, this is important because these are also Alexandrian manuscripts. And the Alexandrian manuscripts are the ones that the scholars exalt uh, as to the, the, being the best and most accurate copies. So here is Codex C, an Alexandrian manuscript that contains the disputed verses from the 5th century. Couple that and all of these with the fact that these authors copied it. And I've only cited six here. There's, I forget the exact count, 18 or 20 potential quotations from back here. And if you want to add more, Codex K, Codex X, Codex Delta, Codex Theta, Codex P, Codex C, 083, 099. And in fact, and I make this a sort of a corollary, I don't make it as the main argument. We make a mistake when we make this the following as the main argument. It's a 99.9% of all manuscripts Remember, there are 1,640 manuscripts that contain Mark 16. 99.9% of them contain the disputed verses. The question and the dispute is all about the early manuscripts and discussion among early Christian scholars and teachers about those verses. Okay, so the conclusion that I want to draw this morning is this. Number one, there is chronologically early attestation to these verses. That's been the bulk of my presentation. There is geographically widespread attestation to these verses. In other words, you've got this disputed verses in manuscripts that come from all over the area of the Roman Empire. And there was no controlling entity that made sure they got put in there. It means that it was just as a part of the natural transmission process of copying manuscripts here and there and throughout the empire. Two more things and then I'll be finished. There is textually pervasive attestation to these verses. That was the point I was making with uh, Codex D and Codex W being Western manuscripts and Codex C being an Alexandrian manuscript and Codex A being, an, uh, being a Byzantine manuscript. And then finally, there is numerically predominant attestation to these verses. As I said a moment ago, 99.9% of these verses have the Uh, Excuse me, the manuscripts have these verses. This thing is blinking stop, so that's what I'm going to do.